no one know all of ye, but if he fought Sugar Ray, he would say that the thing ain't the ring, it's the play. So give me a stage where this bully can rage, and though I can fight, I'd much rather hear myself recite. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 23, or as I call it, through a computer screen darkly. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. I just had a Zoom meeting with seven other people in, in, in anticipation of my like MFA residency, which we're doing virtually, and I didn't lose connection one time. Not once for 45 minutes. That's, so, a, that's a miracle. And we've already lost it once and are just chatting back and forth. So we'll see what <laughs> we'll see what happens with the rest of this. Yeah. Hopefully this is uh maybe the last time we have to do this. Yeah. We're gonna at least give it a go, you know, uh out in the world. So Well, I could turn the new pivotal film table on the opposite direction and be six feet away from each other. So Yeah, we're gonna ha- we're gonna have to do that. Just for our own like self you know uh i don't know i don't know what the word i'm looking for is just so we both feel comfortable self self-worth self-worth preservation oh no i was gonna say self-worth because i i have very little of that at all times come on mario come on so anyway uh well, I would resolve self-worth with a beer usually, but I decided I didn't want to drink this week. So we're not doing a beer. Are you drinking beer at all? Um, I'm That's that's up for debate. I'm going to drink one of these. I got some of these, Mario. Oh, describe it. Describe yeah, so, it. All right, so this is Describe from, what you're drinking. This is a uh, a, a beer from um a brewery in um uh, Missouri. Um or from any number of other places where they make where they make this beer, it's it's little. It's a you know fairly local, I guess. I believe they're owned by like a Danish Dutch company, right? Yeah, or like it that? says it's it's brewed uh, using the choicest tops, best barley, malt, and rice. Um, oh wow, that sounds that sounds <laughs> mighty tasty. It's a uh, it's from uh, this company called Anheuser Busch. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of oh. Anheuser Busch. I think that sounds like that that place that has the theme park. Yeah. That's true. It's it's the one place in the world you could still get Bud Dry, um, and it is a Bud Light because my dad had oh a bud, so <laughs> my dad had a bunch so of Bud Light. Bud. So I'm guessing I'm guessing it's going to be super hoppy with the term Bud oh, in it. You know, I would, I would assume it's hoppy. You know what it smells like? It just smells like being 22. Like this is what being 22 smells like. Ugh. So that was a bad Jesus and not a good Jesus. Well, just I mean, I, so I mean, the, I guess this, the reason I have these is because there's a couple of people who, whenever my parents have a party, they always bring a case of of Bud. But they're a the, case, a case, and they they only drink like a couple buds, like 30, 30 Budweisers, at, at least eighteen, 
every single time. So my dad downstairs in the basement now has like a bunch of boxes of of Bud and Bud Light just like sitting there. So I was just like, I don't feel like buying beer. We're not going to do a beer tonight. I was like, Dad, can I borrow some Buds? He's like, sure. Take some Buds. Did you, did you use the word borrow? Are you going to replace them? I always say borrow, yeah. And to be so fair, you're not gonna re- well, I've bought. You're not going to replace them. Recently, I actually bought him some pretty good stuff. I've got him some fuzzy baby ducks for Father's Day. They had a we had a fourth a very small Fourth of July gathering over last weekend. I brought some ice cream man and some of the fat baby uh, fat orange cat. So, um, you know, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm keeping it good. If I'm feeling feisty later, this will become another sea hack episode because I have several downstairs. There we'll see go. how I feel. There you go. Um. I don't know. We might get speaking feisty. about being feisty. We had a again a sad week of, of movie delays when Halloween kills and he can't any man get delayed again. But one week, one movie, new film to release to to talk about to discuss this week. Tom, what, what? It's a movie? You want me to do it? It's, it's a movie that it's yeah. It yeah, is a, well, yeah. yeah. You're you're the one that knows it. It is a movie that my family was literally just watching five minutes ago. In the other room. <laughs> they got to a little tune called uh, Yorktown. And then they turned it off because it's time for bed. And that movie is the Disney Plus exclusive Hamilton. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. How do you document real life when real life feels more like fiction each day? Red light, green light, now my mind is eviction or pay. I hate that song. I hate that song from Rent. You know why I hate that song, Tom? I don't like Rent. But why do you hate that song? Well, well, because because they're just not going to pay their rent. And I know we're in this age of like not paying for rent thing, but just pay your rent. Mm-hmm. Got to pay your rent. I'm gonna I'm like, gonna stop. Can't jump. We can't jump there. No, you got to pay your rent. You got to pay your bills. You got to pay your rent. Even if the credit card company that you uh, have the credit card from, uh, even if the store you have the credit card from declared bankruptcy this week because of you know coronavirus and also other stuff you gotta pay that you gotta pay that you got a beer collective bill yeah (laughs) they didn't declare bankruptcy they just closed to open another venture oh really yeah yeah. um oh haven hot chicken coming soon but hamilton have at it (laughs) it's funny i don't know part of me was just wants to be like if you don't know what hamilton is listening to us is probably not helping you you know what i mean like if maybe but maybe that's our audience like the people that are so out of touch that they just they just don't know 
They don't, they don't go to any websites that like the biggest conglomerate in the world is advertising on, so they just have I no mean, you, idea. You can watch three Godard films in the time it takes you to watch one Hamilton movie. That is that is true. That, that is true, my friend. Uh, Hamilton is uh, a, or that it's showing on Disney Plus is a filmed version of a three performance, or they said two and a half, and I'll just say three stage performances of. Uh, the musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda Hamilton uh, from 2016, uh, when it was still the original highly critically acclaimed Tony Award-winning cast, uh, which included Lin-Manuel Miranda as Hamilton and Leslie Odom Jr. as Burr and uh, David Diggs as Thomas Jefferson and Christopher Jackson as George Washington and Renee Lee Goldberry as Angelica Schuyler and Philip Sue as Eliza Schuyler and on 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 and on. Uh, it is now a two-hour and 46-minute movie directed by Tommy Kale. Uh, you can watch it on Disney+. Plus. It's hard to describe, and I always say this, but this is an interesting one for different reasons, which I suppose we'll get into. It's hard to describe the plot of Hamilton because uh, it is, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a show. It's a fictionalized, idealized version of a life set to uh, hip-hop music. Um and a mixture of hip hop and show tunes. Well, then we can, and that's like another. We're not gonna. I don't think spend two hours doing Hamilton, but if that was, if we wanted to, that would be one of the things we can get into. Like the value of uh, making sure that there's like representational, stereotypical Broadway things uh, in here. Um, do you want me to? Do you want me to? Do you want me to give my review? Do you want me to throw it to you, Mario? Uh, sure, sure. Give give me your. Uh... Uh, again, I've, I've, we've talked about this before. It's hard for me to be non-biased here. It's hard to be, for me to be objective because my family is uh, obsessed with Hamilton. Um, I think it's, I think it's, for what it is, which is a musical, which is a Broadway musical, I think it's very good. From the movie perspective, I think the movie is really interesting. I think it does a lot of um, interesting things that you don't, you would never get to see on stage um, at all. Uh, some pretty some like dynamic camera movements and things like that. I think it looks pretty good, um, but I think there's. I've always you know we've talked about this this week and and I've talked about this with my wife and I've been talking about this for a few years now. There that Hamilton is one thing for me. It's like a perfect entertainment, but it is never going to be more than that for me, um, because of just some of the the factual things, some of the derivative music choices um, or references, um, those things just kind of always stuck out to me and kind of bugged me. So, and we can get into those after you give your, you give your kind of synopsis review. I, I despise Broadway musicals as a whole. Um, so I don't find much warrant in giving a critical analysis in the Broadway aspect of Hamilton, since uh, my opinion remains totally the same. And I believe Hamilton is an egregious representation of all that I find wrong with Broadway musicals. But so that be with my character. I can review, however, what I believe is its cinematic exploits, because that's what I actually give a shit about. And I, I find it wholly to be an uninteresting experience. Uh, sure, I would I would grant that there's some uh, necessarily novel cinematic choices made that could not be experienced from the stage but I feel as though a lot of maybe the possible intent or um, scope of it is, is limited by the cinema. And ultimately it doesn't feel any different than any sort of phantom 
production would have been or uh, previous productions I've seen of staged versions of plays such as Avenue Q or um, Phantom of the Opera. Uh, I don't feel like there's anything new being added to the table. The sound mixing is significantly solid. Uh, the editing is pretty impeccable in terms of the spreading it over the three performances, but I do not find any of the directorial or cinematographical, cinematographical choices to warrant anything beyond um, its presentation has a staged performance. It is not a cinema experience for me. It is not something that deserves to be reviewed as cinema. It is merely <laughs> another example of a stage performance shot for fans of the play. Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective, I think, because I think the ultimate, you know, the uh, the point of the thing ultimately, I think, becomes, you know, what the last lyrics are: "The who lives, who dies, who tells your story." I think there's a archival quality to this, uh, which I think for the fans and I guess maybe for society in a way is um, interesting because it's, it, it's able to document a thing that doesn't exist anymore uh, or it's a document of a thing that doesn't exist anymore. That's never going to exist again. I think it's one of the things ever that... since Lynn ran Miranda vaporized uh, last week. Yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't hear that, but he's just not going to do it. Like they're not going to do it again. I suppose. I think I thought one of the things that would happen was that if coronavirus didn't happen and, um, uh, you know, Hamilton Broadway was still up and running and in the Heights was playing when it was supposed to be. I thought like for advertisers sake, um, Anthony Ramos who plays, um, Philip Schuyler or Philip, uh, Hamilton and, um, John Lawrence, um, who both die. Um, I thought he would have been, uh, taken over the Hamilton role for like a week, just, you know, for the publicity. Um, but I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's not gonna. I, they can do it forever, I suppose, if they wanted to. But they're not going to. Um, and I think that in and of itself is uh, interesting because it's not a thing that exists for everything. Like you rarely ever catch a, a cultural phenomenon at its height, um, especially in Broadway, and then kind of and, and then have it forever um, in its purest, most dynamic form. Um, you know. But I suppose you have to care about that. You know what I mean? To care about that. Yeah, and I, I would agree. From like an archival perspective, it, it warrants existence. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not discrediting its existence at all because, as I said, I just don't give a fuck about the, the format. Um, but I just want to review the fact that like this was going to become a major event picture in October 2021. They were going to build it up. They were going to you know, try to make this into a real cinema experience and it's not, there's nothing about it outside of, you know, it's sound mixing um, that would at all warrant it being elevated from anything that the Met Opera isn't already. That's well, all it is. It's just like another Met Opera performance. I was gonna... It isn't anything greater than that. It's it, outside of the fact that, you know, it is a cultural, current cultural zeitgeist. Yeah, well, well that can be argued, I suppose. Um, and you know, I don't know how off, how deep we want to go into like the criticism of of, of it, um, and like how well it's touching that cultural zeitgeist guys now. Um, oh yeah, I just I don't give a shit. So like, if you want to, you can, but I just I, I don't care enough. I would rather enough about Hamilton yeah, I, to 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 not do that. Well, that's the thing, and so I would rather not. I suppose I'll just you know talk to your first point first, and that you're right. It is, I think, an elevated version of what they would do on like PBS. I think this fit would fit really well as like a PBS. 
um, fundraiser. I think it would work okay on a big. I think it would work okay on a big screen because it would be just bigger and louder, and I think you'd be watching it with a whole bunch of people. So that was one of the things that kind of kept encroaching on my like overall just kind of enjoyment of like my family enjoying this thing, and me just kind of not wanting to be like overly um, critical of the experience because they just liked it so much was. The fact that I think there was parts of this musical, I think there are parts of this that you need an audience's energy to like have the what's happening on stage really mean something. Um, so I think like Leslie, you know, like Aaron Burr's signature song, Wait For It, I think if it's not my favorite song, it's my like second favorite song. Um, but I think staged on the on the TV, it's just Leslie Odom Jr. just standing on a stage singing a song. And I've said a bunch of times, it's like I just want him to do something. He's just standing there. This is like the best song. It's the most dynamic. It's the most kind of emotional, and he's just standing there. But I wonder if you know, you notice that he's standing there like that. If you're in a room full of people that just experienced whatever you know they had experienced up to that point, like a, a theater that's buzzing, you know what I mean? That's kind of just like sitting there waiting with anticipation for whatever the next song is. Um, you obviously don't get any of that stuff here. So there's stuff that just kind of happens and you're just like, okay, well now this is happening like again, you know, um, where it, and this is true of all musicals when they reprise a theme or something like that. And they just go back to stuff. You're just like, okay, I just want them to move through this so they can get to like a song that's doing something or, or, or I want all these other people to get off the stage. So David Diggs can come on stage and just do anything, which just elevates everything else that's happening on stage whenever he's on it. Um, and I think, but that's, I think, a product of the television movie experience versus, definitely versus the theater experience, but pro- possibly versus, like, the big screen experience, too. The one thing, I guess the one thing I'm going to add critically from a perspective of not a musical fan, but as somebody who's seen enough of them, uh, the one thing I always did not want to see on screen was Jonathan Groff. Every time he was on screen, I was like, get the fuck off. You're, I don't want you here. You're gonna, I'm going to be honest with you, you are the only one. You're the the only one. I despise force-fed humor in in things that already are one lighthearted, but two maybe not where it's not becoming. Um, I understand the historical necessity of the humorous scenes in like Shakespeare, Mm -hmm. like you know the uh, the Night Watchers in Macbeth, but I always find them to be ultimately pointless in the modern day, and that's what Jonathan Groff's like performance was to me it was this interruption and i don't think a lot of musicals nowadays kind of have excised that like either they're continuously humorous or they kind of put the humor throughout i mean i don't know Um, i might know less about musicals than you do um because i don't i have no frame of reference to know if that's the case or not i mean my music my appreciation are more verbose than me that would be like aha no you're wrong but it feels like an archaic system of um maybe putting a beat into a, into a play or a musical. And, and it just was a, a hindrance. I was like, fucking, what are you doing? I don't care. You'll be back. Yeah. Well, fucking stop it. Like, get out of here. Yeah. I already hate, I already hate everything that's happening on. And this is just padding it. It's funny. And like I said, worse. you're like, I think Jonathan Groff's performance with like the, you know, the presence of King George is actually one of the most roundly like well-regarded things of the show. So well, it's funny that you're kind this of is like my big, this is my big cut. This is my true big hot take. Like a lot of like Roger Ebert, you know, once said like video games are kind of the, the, the shitty media that isn't really like art. 
the Broadway musical to me is is never art. It is. Oh yeah. It is ultimately a pulpy, poppy, nothing thing. Well, um, that think... is is never really elevated beyond a certain kind of level of of artistic note. Yeah. And artistic merit, unless it's kind of subdivided with actual an actual play or an actual like spoken narrative or something else around it. Um, but like the purebred sort of like Jersey Boys, E. Hamilton rent style musical is always going to be stuck at some level. Well, I think the idea of Hamilton you know, is that it's, it's never going to exceed yeah. that. It's in, it's, I think in terms of like a lot of things that it was trying to do, I think it's definitely perceived as an elevation. Again, I can't, I, I suppose it is. I can't speak to that necessarily, but my favorite musical is Jesus Christ Superstar. And you know what I don't like about Jesus Christ Superstar is going to see it in theaters. And what I do like is listening to the 1970 like double album is really as far as I want to ever go with it. Um, and that's as far as I've ever really wanted to go with it. You know, when I was growing up, I was like a big Andrew Lloyd Webber fan. But then like, I saw Jesus Christ Superstar and I was like, that was weird. I'm like, it's weird on stage. It's a good record. It's an awesome record. Let's just do more of that. I saw Cats at the Schubert and I was like, no, this is, this is, this is wrong. Everything about this is wrong. Like I like, I like some of the songs in Cats, but this performance seems, this performance seems odd to me. Um, and I, I, I really haven't seen like a ton of musical theater since. Um, and it's just, you know, it's just not my, it used to be my jam. I mean, I was a musical, I grew up doing operas and, and I did this musical camp and all this other stuff. Um, but I didn't see a lot of stuff and I'm okay with it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty okay with it. Um, so yeah, my high school experience was, was punctuated by theater, but the theater was like Stoppard or see, I didn't even Shakespeare do- or, you know, um, Simon, but like, you know, I remember once upon, once we did like, um, how to succeed in business without really trying. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, and I just was fucking like, I, no way, no way am I going to try yeah. to do this because it's fucking stupid. Like, well, and that's what I find the musical to be just, just, I mean, obviously I'm not deriding it for existing cause it has its place, but I certainly don't think it's places is, is merited art. Um, I, yeah, again, I don't, I don't, won't pretend to, to, be able to speak to that um but i think the idea of hamilton though is that it's kind of above those things and it kind of brings people into the to the experience and i think that's the benefit of the having it on yeah, uh on disney plus now is that it kind of can bring people into the experience that couldn't ever have the experience ever um and oh, certainly never I mean- have the experience and i think it has that in and of itself has value because i think it's better than like the the average run of your mill like musical actually I take that back it's definitely better than your average run of the mill musical um what like how you feel about the politics or whatever which I'm, we're not going to get into it doesn't sound like which I'm I'm kind of okay with um you know um however you feel about that it's still it's still pretty uh you know it's it's a kind of a remarkable thing that has happened yeah, it's it's a it's a craftsman like um, creation. It's pretty impressive, like Lin Manuel Miranda did with the book, in terms of covering the wide swath of life he was able to in a concise way. Um, you know, and and I and I give it credit for introducing a population of people who were formerly maybe not interested in the media to be interested in the musical because it's always good to have people to be exposed to different types of musicals. I have a problem with it, you know, still being a 
type of media that has a uh, severe classist nature to it in that, you know, an average working person can never afford to actually go see it and must settle for the Disney Plus thing. Yeah. I think that's a severe detriment. And I think that's a major th- reason why I fucking hate Broadway yep. and New York. Um, and uh, <laughs> you stuck that one in there. Uh, but um, but in terms of it, you know, exposing people to new forms of art, it, like I, I do appreciate that. But to cl- clarify, once again, it's it's not a, it's not a film. This isn't a film. And anybody that once said like this should get Oscars for whatever outside of, I wouldn't even want to see it get Oscars for sound design or editing or whatnot. Even it, regardless of if it technically quote unquote deserved it, because it's it's not filmed for the screen. It was never created for the screen. Emmy nominations or whatever, sure. Um, I don't even know that, but like it, it just it doesn't it doesn't belong in in the realm of film. It's it's not it's not meant for film. It's not meant for a cinema audience. It's meant for a stage audience. Well, and that's I was listening to a podcast um, where they were talking about it, and I, you know, someone that had seen it a lot of times on Broadway, um, who's actually kind of a loser about it. But that's a different conversation that we could have had at the bar if everything wasn't <laughs> the fucking worst. Um, that one of the things they missed watching it on their TV that they got seeing it in theaters was like the way that the choreography really balanced itself on both sides of the stage. So when we were just watching it, my wife was pointing out that she really liked this part in helpless, not helpless in uh, satisfied where, you know, all these people kind of crowd around Alexander Hamilton. They just turn him back towards Eliza. And she's like, Oh, I really like that. And I think, which is, it was a cool moment. But I think one of the interesting things about this or one of the detriments about this is that you have no idea what's happening on the other side of the stage. You just see like this one thing. And apparently one of like the really great things about this, this musical experience is the way that, and then you kind of see a little bit of evidence in this and like all those like slow motion things where they kind of drop the lights to blue and they get the, the, the uh, turntable to kind of spin really slowly and people move really slowly. And it kind of looks like there's like a tornado kind of effect. Um, you, you don't you miss like the balance stage you miss like the full complement of everything that's you're supposed to be getting if you were to see it in theaters so i suppose that's a kind of small price to pay in a way but i think to your point there's a there's an experience to seeing it and you're not going to get it so watching a film you're getting essentially unless it's unless it's the the justice league movie and that way you're not getting the full experience um if you're seeing any other movie than the Justice League movie, you're getting like whatever the director's vision is and every you know the full experience of it. you're seeing whatever they want you to see. Here, you're only a lot of times just seeing half of the half of the the stage. Um, so it's just it's kind of hard to make a comment about that. Um, about like what's you know how good all that other stuff is. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, that was kind of anticlimactic, Mario. And I, I feel that that's actually probably pretty appropriate for us. <laughs> I think I think that kind of kind of speaks more volume than we could have said in any words. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think I was just I was ready to be like amazed, and I was just like, mm, pretty good, pretty good. And then and I was ready to be I was ready to hate my life, and I uh, continued to hate my life outside of like twenty minutes. But like I said, I'm not gonna criticize that because I would. You know, I would, I would need some frame of reference to criticize the material itself. And one, there's mostly I don't, I don't fucking care enough to do that. Which I and kind of so thought was going to be. I here, don't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to criticize it for that because I, 
feel as though that warrants critical application. And I just don't have the care from the former media to do that. So whatever. Enjoy Hamilton. That's great. I'm not going to like I say you're wrong. I'm Very just going to say if you try to make me watch it, I'm going to fucking strangle you. Death. No, it's over. It's over uh, for you. Yeah. No. I was like, I'm done. I did it. I put in my time. I was. I, I would put that on my dating profile. We'll not watch Hamilton again. Anybody, <laughs> if you got a cultural backlash, they tried to cancel you from society. <laughs> this guy won't watch <laughs> Hamilton. He says it's a dating prerequisite. I'll have to sign that Harper's letter. Yeah. 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 Oh, man. That's getting people in trouble. Um, all right. So, are we done? Glenn Danzig? All right. And so, we'll be right back with Mario's 23? That's uh, actually my 26. I can't believe we're on 23. It seems like that's good. It seems like we've made it very far. <laughs> we've made it very far. It's just kind of hitting me right now. We haven't died of cirrhosis. Yeah, we haven't. It's good. Good for us. We're we're made of stouter stuff than that, Mario. All right, we'll be right back. Few films in my mid-teens had the ability to emotionally or mentally scar me with the same sort of vigor. As my number 23. Uh, it is a wholly affectious experience, one that is operantly uncomfortable to watch, one that is um, at once enticing, uh, having a siren like quality to it, but also a Medusa esque quality covering my gamut of Ooh. Greek auteurs. Um, and auteur was the wrong word. I was sounding real smart there, and then I fucked it up. But anyhow, uh, this film is something that sticks to your mind like gum. It infects you, as I said. It, it bleeds through you. And it. Uh, this film also stands as a stark anti-drug message, far more effective than 18-year-old Rachel E. Cook could have ever done. Although, admittedly, I always like to look at 18 to 23 to probably even now today, Rachel Lee Cook has Mario. But regardless, this film is um, a profoundly impacting one, and it is one that uh, warranted for almost the remainder of my life since the, my complete and total derision of Julia Roberts. In yeah. fact, yeah, me too. a pinnacle reason for this film to exist where it does is one... It's made me always forgive Marlon Wayans for anything he's done since and wish that he would re-enter the realm of the dramatic. dramatic. Mm -hmm. And two, it was the first time um, I inconsolably was upset by a person winning an Oscar. Uh, it led to me in my comedy rock band college days to create a song called Julia Julia, where I went on a four-minute spiel against Julia Roberts because she would win the best actress oscar that year for a particularly facile and boring flat performance in aaron brockovich over a absolutely tumultuous and uh, tempest performance by ellen burston my film at 23 is the 2000 darren ardofsky film requiem for a dream purple in the morning Blue in the afternoon, orange in the evening. Just like that. One, two, three, four. 
we'll discuss the plot of Requiem for a Dream in the coming weeks when this film shows up on Tom's list. Yay. So as it was last week when Tom presented Pan's Labyrinth's discussion, uh, I feel as though this will mostly be me chitter-chattering <laughs> about. Um, this creates my love affair with Darren Aronofsky, a director we've always already talked about, and a director who outside of his nauseous Noah, um, which still has its quasi-merits, uh, is somebody who has been a prevalent figure in my life as a, a person who enjoys the cinema. Uh, I found Mother, obviously, has we previously talked about. Did we talk about Mother in this podcast? Yeah, it was like uh, 80-something. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I found Mother at times uh, a bit hobbled, but uh, I absolutely adore The Fountain. And uh, Requiem for a Dream is the catalyst to all of that. Uh, additionally, it has led to led to me just always seeking out any film that Clint Mansell scored. Oh, his yeah. Lux Eternal here being probably my second favorite piece of music he's ever done, next to Death is the Road to Awe from the previously mentioned Fountain. Um, so, for in essence, this, this this sets the course for a lot of things I would seek out. Most importantly, though, it would set a course for the thing I do not seek out. And that is Julia fucking Roberts. <laughs> I uh, Next week, or two weeks from that, uh, um, no, sorry, next week, in next episode of The Countdown, uh, we will have a discussion on my list of um, two films that sit next next tweet has favorites they 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 need to coexist where they are um this episode this this particular film represents an antithesis of that um (laughs) in that you know i would i would feverishly seek out films from the creators of this uh you know, from Darren Arnosky, from Clint Mansell. Um, I would always kind of crack a smile when I saw Ellen Burstyn. I would for a couple years crack a smile when I saw Jared Leto and then, you know, same, Jared Leto same. happened to himself. Um, and I would still, you know, I, it set off a, a love affair that I had. A love affair. A love uh, requite, unrequited, unrequited, I don't know. A, a, a deep crush on Jennifer Connelly as everyone else had because I never saw Legend. Was that the movie she was in? Labyrinth. Labyrinth. I never saw that before. Like this is my first Jennifer Connelly experience. Really? You've never, you have, wait, have you seen Labyrinth now? I've seen Labyrinth oh, now. Okay, but uh, this is my first. Just making Jennifer sure. Con- this is the first time where Jennifer Connelly like made an impact on me. Uh-huh. I was like Jennifer Connelly. Um, conversely, uh, I saw Requiem for a Dream about two or three months after I'd saw Aaron Brockovich, and I had despised every moment of Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich uh, reaffirmed a distrust I already had in Julie Roberts, uh, as you could see. Nearly none of her filmography shows up on my list. Um, we got closer, one. I think is the only film I have on that. And a lot of that is driven by the fact that she shit on for 100 minutes. Uh, Aaron Brockovich kind of set the course, and, and this resultant film kind of set the course for me for the fact that I would avoid Steven Soderbergh and for a few years until I feel he's, he's redeemed himself and that I would very much to this day look at Julie Roberts in a picture and go 
fucking no, nope, I'm out. Because it's it's a it's a unfair sort of hatred I have for her as a performer. Uh, not as a person. I'm sure she's fine. I but don't know. Do you have a hatred for Because I've always been really indifferent to her as a performer. Like, I've never liked anything she's done. But the only thing that's ever upset me is Aaron Brockovich. And I was upset for the same reason you're probably upset, which is that she robbed one of the great film performances of all time of an Oscar. Robbed it. That's what I, I've, 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 I've always just kind of been like, Meh, I don't care. I've never cared. Like, for a second about Julie Roberts. Previously, I just didn't seek out Julia Roberts' performances. I, I didn't like them. She uh-huh. was um, much the same way as Gina Davis is for me, has always kind of been, in that I just didn't care. But uh, one, her performance in Aaron Brockovich is something that I that I just naturally despised. But then when she was the front runner and, and stormed over Ellen Burstyn, uh, that, that just that defined it. Like no, from, that was since. No good. That since then I have been like, no, it was because her winning for Aaron Brockovich isn't Julie Roberts winning for anything besides a, this culmination of Julia Roberts acting like Julia Roberts, but she's yeah, always does. Um, Ellen Burstyn is constantly you know reinventing herself, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the way from you know her, her Academy Award for. Oh God! What did she win the Academy Award for? I just was thinking about it yesterday. I was just thinking about it yesterday. But she won the uh, for Alice doesn't, doesn't live here, here anymore. Um, Last Picture Show, all the way up to, you know, her performances in, um, you know, The Fountain or, like even Big Love, like mm. good old Bill Paxton show. Like she's always different. She's kind of taking this matronly quality to her. Um, but it just, it just set that in stone. And I, I, you know, there, there's, there's of course, vast different reasons why I love Requiem for a Dream. Why Requiem for a Dream is an extremely pivotal film. The reason I'm holding back on explaining that right now is I feel we're going to cross a lot of the same bridges, um, when we get to the film, uh, in a few months time. Uh, I'm just trying to re-mention the unique ones that, that kind of punctuate here now. I will say this this was i was always somebody who did not appreciate who hated resoundingly the kind of frantic editing style um has has a has a motif mm-hmm. uh like the, the kind of feverish energy that you know the safties brothers have now that was kind of i believe given birth by like run lola run mm. um that German film directed by that guy. I don't remember, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, the 1999, it kind of set that in, in tone. Like the matrix has a lot of that as well. And this was kind of the, uh, the beginning stages of that kind of energy that exists that to this day. And it's still an editing format. I fucking hate with every fiber of my body. And it's not necessarily the Paul Greengrass dislocated editing, but it's a more, it's a, it's an editing that, that serves a functional purpose. Oftentimes mm-hmm. it is, the only time where I think that editing has a, a real merit is here. Here and in the nightmare scene, uh, sorry, the hell scenes of Bill and Ted's bogus journey are the only time, <laughs> I, I say that without really any sort of um, irony or, or humor. I actually agree. I actually feel that way. But it's the only times where like it, it really works mm-hmm. um, in terms of building to the same 
thematic intensity that the rest of the film carries. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that was something you you would have mentioned because typically Bill and Ted. I, I, no, well, obviously. <laughs> um, um, no, but just just the style of editing is is the one well, time where I was just like, oh, this particular popular style of editing work can work. Well, here's the thing. So, did you see? And one of the questions I wanted to ask is that did you see this before you saw Pie? Oh yeah, yeah. This okay. is my first uh, Darren Aronofsky. So we were all up into Pi, and we were like super ready for whatever like kind of you're weirdo like, editing. You like Dwayne Johnson? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were like Dwayne Johnson. Um. So I don't. I, this is weird. This is weird for me because the Safdie brothers, I think, uh, owe a lot of debt to early Aronofsky stuff, and I think they actually do a significantly. Uh, Mm, mediocre job trying to emulate what uh, Darren Aronofsky was doing and Darren Aronofsky and his editor were doing in the sense that I think every single one of these weirdo editing choices really means something. So I thought it was a way to not just convey like a general sense of, of, of drama or a general sense of like, you know, uh, constantly raising stakes, which I think is one of the things that kind of as upon thinking about and watching Uncut Gems a couple more times, um, I think one of the things that they do where they think that they're doing is like the simple act of, of Adam Sandler walking down the street is raising the stakes of this thing. He's not in it. It, 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 I guess it works, but it's also feels like it's for nothing. This, uh, it, the yeah, editing in this feels like it's for, it's, it's character driven. It's like character driven editing. So when he splits the screen, it's not for no reason. It's because these people, two people are on different sides of, of, of life they're not even together anymore they're not even in the same scene even though they're in the same house or when like you know the fast cutting of or or the um the uh when they speed up the frame rate when the, you know they're playing records after they after they shoot up with that good stuff um you know that's all that's all relevant to character that's all relevant to story building um it's all it's all narratively relevant which i think is important or metaphorically relevant which works best for me um, so I think he kind of pushed it to another level in this movie. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I, I think it's, it, it's, it's Darren Aronofsky kind of, you know, borrowing from his own style and, you know, kind of, kind of taking from the energy of the time, like that kind of split screen had become fairly popular, like with Mike Figgis's, uh, time code. Oh my before. God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I remember like that. that. That horrendous piece of garbage. Um, <laughs> Mike sorry, Figgis. Mike Figgis. <laughs> um, and, and I find it, I just find it interesting that, that the Safdie brothers kind of take a lot of, of stylings from, from that style of editing and kind of just fuck it up since a lot of their films could kind of carry the same gritty energy if they just like kept on the Abel Ferreira train that they, that they want to go on. Mm. Like Abel Ferreira is not, not often doing that. Abel Ferreira is letting things kind of like sit for a while, letting the filters do the work, not, mm-hmm. you know, needing to, to hide things. Um, and, and and that's the thing. I th- I think a lot of that that intense energy is is often you know in terms of blocking and in terms of editing and in terms of the inflection in a character's voice um, is often used as a facsimile for uh, uh, crafting a a drive. Um, all of that here is is purely naturalistic, though. All that here, while stylized, feels as though it fits within the perspective of each character. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to the point, and to that end, when it gets when it gets crazy, that stuff 
it kind of expands a little bit. So there's almost like a there's a suggestion of a fisheye lens a couple times in the movie. You know what I mean? Like really early too, like when when Harry and Tyrone are kind of are, are skateboarding that television, you know, to 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 sell it. Um, mm. And it's kind of like an upshot, and it's not quite a fisheye, but it suggests a fisheye, so that when Sarah completely loses it, and there's that just great fisheye sequence of her face, um, it's not like it's not a language that he's just kind of dropping on top of you and being like, "Well, this is new." It's been this thing that's been kind of suggested, suggested, and kind of, uh, and it's leading to something. All these little shots like lead to like something totally crazy at the end. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, and your Jared Leto point earlier, I think is also very funny where I was also on the fence about this Jared Leto movie. It'd be, or Jared Leto being in this Darren Aronofsky movie, which I was very excited to see, but, uh, he, he kind of nailed it. He kind of nailed it here. Yeah. And I, I would convince myself for several years afterwards that, you know, when I'd see Jared Leto in a film, I'm like, Oh, it's, it's fine. This is this is this is a fine thing. I'm okay with this because you know he's doing good things. Like when I'd show up in like Panic Room and Lord of War, I'd be like, it's it's fine. And then by the time he was, you know, you get to like, you know, like Chapter Twenty Seven, and then to his fucking performance in um, Dallas Buyers Club that I that I go, nope, goodbye. There's a middle period. Um... A perpetual middle period, I suppose. Did you read the book? Did you ever read the Hubert Sucker Jr. book? I, I tried once long ago, and I just kind of found it. There's something about it that just didn't connect with me. Well, so I, I just never went back to it. I kind of felt the same way, and I think it was because uh, uh, the movie was so vivid that like a 1957 version of like the same movie like was not cutting it for me. Like I kind of it lost its. Um, it didn't have, and I know it's supposed. It's definitely supposed to. It's definitely supposed to be like, be as heavy um, as like you know the 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 movie. Is it set? Is, is it set in fifty seven? Not it was, the thought, movie isn't. No, but the book is. No, the no. I know the book. The book set fifty seven, not like seventy eight. I thought it was supposed to be contemporary. But even I mean, it's 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 a it's a it's a past. It doesn't have the it doesn't have the immediacy of the world that we're seeing like on screen. It's a kind of you know. Uh, in nostalgia sort of infused uh reading experience more so than yeah than this which is like happening to you now and i, I would say like the technical features of the film requiem for a dream have that urgency yeah it, it doesn't have that same sort of agency that same sort of call to action that exists in the film mm-hmm. i think so too and i think for some people it probably does it just it just didn't for me. I, mean, I think it's probably maybe because I saw Requiem too young and it made too big of an impact that the the source material just wasn't ever going to match it. Um, you were you're 18 when you saw it. Probably. I was 18. Yeah, we saw the Yorksworth yeah. Cinema in New Haven, which is like the perfect 15. place to see it. So, like, I mean, where did you? I think the benefit I think of which we'll talk about a little bit when I when we do mine. The benefit of seeing it at York Square is that York Square was kind of a dump, so we were seeing like a dumpy movie. In like I a, saw it on a dumpy theater, and it was like so perfect. I saw it a bunch. Of, I saw it several times at York Square before it left. I saw it rented in a little shell DVD case from my local ranching town's <laughs> uh, video store that I always wanted to sneak into the adult section of. I never did until I actually turned eighteen. Uh, why didn't you go? Where's people watching you? 
I just didn't feel like I should sneak in until I was actually 18. Did you ever work at a video store? I did not. Oh, yeah. So we, I mean, I worked at a couple of video stores after um, my record store closed that I was the manager of. And uh, um, we had camera. There was a camera in the adult section in both of the locations of the video store. How many kids would sneak, try to sneak in? None. Because I think everyone knew that there was cameras. But actually, no one went in the adult section. Like, we didn't rent a lot of adult movies, which I've always found, like, odd. Like, I worked there for three months. I worked there a lot, and I don't think I ever rented an adult movie once. I watched Shrek 1,500 times, but I didn't rent an adult movie. The adult version? Like, the (laughs) Woodrocket version, or? No, it was when Shrek came out on video, so. uh, April Neal playing Fiona? No, I don't know what any of this means. These are all porn references. There you go. (laughs) <laughs> no, we never, we never did that. I remember I got in trouble once for putting on like a PG thirteen movie. And they're like, you can't watch this. Like on the on the screens in the store, I got in trouble. Was so. that was that film uh, Speed Two? Because I don't understand. I don't remember what that film was. I feel like it wasn't. I feel like it was probably like a like maybe like Life of Brian or something. Oh no, you know what it was? It Life was, of Brian was R rated. It was um City of Lost Children. I tried to watch City oh. of Lost Children in the store, and they were just like, "What? You can't watch this." Yeah, you can't. You can't play. You can't play that on a in a video store, well, man. I, but I kept walking by it like every day. I'd walk by the cover and be like, "What is this movie? Like, where did this movie come from? Like, what the hell is this guy supposed to be doing?" Um, but like, I put it on. Genou, I watched it. is 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 illegal in public viewing. I didn't know that. I believe then, Mario. I, didn't I know. believe they once tried to put uh, a Genou film. Uh, like Amelie or something in a, in a park once and the park burnt down. Huh? Really? Like on it just spontaneously combusted or someone? Yes. Burned it? Yes, absolutely. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I will not watch Amelie outside then with strangers. Yeah. You can, you can watch it in a confined private space. Right. Okay. Good. Good to know. Thanks Mario. You're welcome. <laughs> do, 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 do. Uh, anyway, I love this movie. I can't wait to yep. like. I can't wait to spend a long, long time just like ripping it apart. Yeah, I can't wait to you know dig into the flesh, sink into it, get underneath it, wrap ourselves in it, wrap ourselves in it. A skin suit of drugs. Yeah, skin suit of drugs. There it is. Episode title. Skin suit of if they drugs. Ever, if they ever do a special special edition, um, we'll, we'll, we'll that'll be the tagline that's on the, it's on the an, top there. You know, it's pivotal a, film, a skin suit of drugs. It's, it's it's an odd thing about the Darren Aronofsky movies is where he hasn't. There are no Aronofsky criterions, except for does he have like a a good definitive edition of a DVD? I'm not sure he does, which is like makes me sad bums me out i guess guess not pie had like that artisan release yeah had that had but that was just i think it was just the movie and a couple of shorts mm. I, remember, I, can think of. I remember that pie i had that i bought that pie that's where i saw pie i had they had it at the record store well the pie dvd case itself looks like a criterion case but it's just it was the cover of pie well just remember when you hit like old dvd cases like look like they weighed felt like they weighed 15 pounds and you picked one up and you're like oh my god like i just have to have this huge dvd that was mm, like the, the the like the seven dvd when that first came out 
the double disc, it was like, you know, in the sleeve or the Fight Club DVD. I was like, oh my God, it weighs so much. It just has to be the best DVD ever. Or the, the four collection of the first four. No, sorry. The second through fifth Child's Play movies that had the rubber Chucky on the front. Yeah. I don't remember that one. Well, it had a rubber Chucky on the front. There you go. I feel like there's a box. I feel like there's a horror movie that came in a wood box. I feel like there's like an edition of like the Wicker Man or something that came in, in like a, a wooden slipcase or something like that with like a with like uh, a, a, a fire embossed like logo or title on it or something. Army of Darkness came in a faux. Um, I remember the Army of Darkness one with like the paper bag. And there's also a DVD that came in a rubber Necronomicon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember that was that. your, That's the one I remember. That was the original, or was that Army of Darkness as well? I can't remember. I don't remember. But yeah, DVDs are DVDs used to be awesome. And now you just gotta. And now you just look at one of ten posters that Netflix shows you based on the algorithm of whether or not you watch movies for titties or you watch <laughs> movies for people blowing up <laughs> or Tiger King. If you watch Tiger King, it just doesn't recommend you anything. Uh, all right. Um, good. Well, I'm excited now. My interest is like peaked for however many episodes from now when we do the big one. Indeed. Indeed, a real. But we will be right back with Tom's number 23. Woo-hoo. Welcome back, everybody. Um, it's hard to know where to begin with my number 23. Um, again, it's definitely a movie that's, that defines what I talked about last week. This is, for uh, a little bit, the best movie I'd ever seen. And that's funny. This stuff happens fast. Like when I don't know if when you kind of got into film like heavy and you realize that like film was awesome, if every single movie you saw was kind of just like, holy shit, like the, I'm never going to see a movie better than that. And, you know, and this is definitely one of those movies. It's a movie that, I, like, for a while I didn't understand, and then I and then I found a thing that made me understand it, and those things are just kind of, like, inextric- inextricably linked, and it's great. And I actually have a lot of affection for this movie. This is, like, a weird movie to have, like, affection for, um, which I think is, has, is a, has a problematic viewing experience when you're just like, oh, that guy, that fucking guy. Um, he could have been somebody. Um, but my... And we'll kind of get into like how we got there and stuff. My number twenty three is uh, Martin Scorsese's nineteen eighty film *Raging Bull*. The Bronx Bull, the Raging Bull. Let's hear it for the great Jake LaMotta, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the best. And I can take him more than anybody. You're dead. You're married. Leave the young girls for me. There's no way I'm going down. I don't go down for nobody. Listen, why does he have to make it so hard on himself? If you beat Trigger Ray, you'll get a shot at the title. You feel that way? There's no one else around who wants to fight him. They're all afraid. There's a lot of bad things, Joey. Maybe it's coming back to me. So when we did my accidental tourist episode, um, I had talked about this film as literature class I took as a junior in high school. And the accidental tourist is the first movie we watched. We watched four movies. We watched the accidental tourist, read read the book, and watched the movie. Over the course of a couple of a few weeks, 
We watched a movie that I'm not going to name because it's on your list. We watched Raging Bull and we watched uh, the movie that would inexplicably uh, beat Raging Bull at the Oscars that year for Best Picture uh, and Best Director, Ordinary Fucking People. What's what was up with this uh, professor or this teacher? Like, why did he show ordinary people and accidental tourists? Well, because they're both books, so it's film as literature. He wanted to kind of have the the adaptation were, quality things. In there. Those were his choices. He couldn't well, show you like the nineteen thirties like Little Women. If I had to guess, Mario, I would say it's because he was a child of like the very late, like the the late sixties. Like I, I bet he was born in the late sixties, so I bet he was a teenager. When like I bet he really identified with Timothy Hutton and you can show you like people. Dune. No, 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 because he's just not that kind of guy. He's clearly mm. like a this kind of guy, and he liked Ann Tyler, and he liked you know he probably thought he was Timothy Hutton, or he just really liked Taxi, and when he saw Judd Hirsch was in it, he was like, "Yes, I'm there." I mean, to be fair, that's, that's that makes sense. That's that's, I can't. I can't really excuse that. Wait a minute. Why did why did he do uh, like terms of endearment instead of? That seems like that'd be up his book. I don't know. Up his... I can't tell you. I just these are the four he did, Mario. Those are the four he did. And I, I, I if I had to guess, if I had to guess, I would say he probably did it because it the narrative. And I don't remember like specifically some of the things that he said, but I definitely, I think the narrative of it being like the best picture winner juxtaposing Raging Bull with Ordinary People is definitely on the table. I would assume. Oh, no, I bet I met Exodel Taurus versus Terms of Endearment. Oh, I don't know. He I just, did. I think he just liked the book. Okay. Maybe Fair he, enough. maybe he, maybe he imagined himself a Macon Leary type. Who knows? Who knows, Mario? Um, but we, Raging Bull was a third movie we watched and I remember him just kind of, one of the things that he would do, he would talk about it and he'd tell us to look at stuff uh, and he wouldn't tell us necessarily why we needed to look at stuff. He'd just be like, pay attention to the sound design in here. Pay attention to the editing. Pay attention to uh, the size of things and and, and uh, the perspective. And he wouldn't necessarily say why. But I remember from the just unbelievable, still to this day, completely evocative and mesmerizing opening shot just being like, what the hell is this? And it's weird because I had seen Deer Hunter already. I'd already seen Deer Hunter. I was aware of Goodfellas. I was aware of Casino. I like hadn't seen all of Casino, but I'd seen parts of Casino. Um, I was aware of Robert De Niro as a person uh, and Joe Pesci as a person. I was aware of my cousin Vinny. So I'd seen, I knew who these people were. You know what I mean? But I'd never seen Rage. I'd never seen Raging Bull. I hadn't even like. I don't think I'd even heard of Raging Bull in in uh, in 1999. Like in, in early 1999, I don't think I. I wasn't reading. And this is when we're gonna get to this. I wasn't reading about film. And I think at a certain point, Raging Bull became kind of. It wasn't a forgotten movie, but it's like one of those classic films that you just kind of don't worry about. And I feel like there's a lot of these things on the sight and sound list too, where they're just like, well, that's a classic. And you're just like, well, where did that come from? Like, I don't know what that movie is. How can it be a classic? I've never even heard of it. Um, so I think there was a point where Raging Bull kind of operated a lot like that. And I think it was probably because it didn't win 
didn't win the award it was supposed to win. Martin Scorsese still hadn't won an Oscar by that point, and he was making all these, you know, weird movies. I had seen that's the thing I'd seen Bringing Out the Dead, so I was like, not I was I had a radar, and it was the, some of these people were on the radar. It just wasn't. I think Bringing Out the Dead was before that. Bringing Out the Dead was ninety eight. I think I'm gonna check that. I'm gonna check that, but I'm pretty sure I had seen it. Ba, 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 ba. I am looking. And we, yeah, that's 99. 99. So I definitely had seen it. I saw it and I saw that in theaters. Um, but I didn't know. I didn't know about Raging Bull, Mario. And then and then we had to write an essay about Raging Bull. And I was like, I don't know what to write about Raging Bull. I have no idea what to say about this movie. It completely like shook me up. Um in from uh, just uh, from all the things I mentioned before, all those craft things, but then De Niro's so good and Joe Pesci's so good and this movie feels like it was it was made in nineteen eighty, but it feels like it was made like you know, twenty five years before that. It's just weird. It's like a weird it exists in this weird state. And so one of the things that we were doing in nineteen ninety nine, Mario, was we were going we were starting to go on the internet. And I don't know if you remember, but in the nineties, the late nineties, there was a show on TNT called Monster Vision. Do you remember Monster Vision? Don't know shit about Joe Bob Briggs, man. <clears throat> okay, good. So me and my friend, every day we would go to the computer lab at the school, we would bring up the Monster Vision website, and they always had a caption contest where you could write a caption, and if you won the caption contest, you won a t-shirt. And my friend won two t-shirts. So that's what we were doing in the computer lab. We were going on Monster Vision. But I went on, I don't know, AOL or Yahoo or, you know, uh, Ask Jeeves, whatever was the popular search engine back then. Internet Internet Explorer, whatever. And I typed in, I typed in Raging Bull. And you know where I got to, Mario? IMDb. No, I didn't get to IMDb. Although right after that, I became kind of obsessed with IMDb. Did you, do you remember going through an IMDb like obsessive phase where you just like looked at IMDb like all day and just like looked at lists of people and were just like they were in that that person yeah, IMDb, did that IMDb is the reason why I have the the kind of expanse of knowledge that I have at some on some weird aspects of film yeah just because I was never compelled by like TV tropes the way people are mm-hmm. but uh you know IMDb. And, and, you know, later Wikipedia became that for me. Well, I was the same way with allmusic.com, where, like, when me and my friends were getting into music, like, seriously, we would go on allmusic.com and just look at stuff and be like, oh, my God, look at all these people. So now I know who played on what and doesn't matter. I found myself, Mario, confronted with the Roger Ebert great movie film essay on Raging Bull. This is significant for one reason. I knew who Roger Ebert was. He was the guy that was on TV sometimes. When I was able to, when I was home on a Saturday morning to watch Roger Ebert on whatever channel he played in Connecticut, I forget what channel it was. I had up to this point never read a Roger Ebert review, not one. I can actually argue I'd never read a film review that wasn't written by Peter Travers of Rolling Stone because my dad got Rolling Stone, and I read his film reviews and they, I was totally indifferent to them. I still think he's not a very good film reviewer. Oh, I could spin magazine. I got all these magazines that all had film reviews, but in the, all those things, I didn't, I didn't read the film reviews. I was, I didn't understand the idea of a film review or what, what a film review could really mean. You know what I mean? Peter Travers was essentially just being like, this movie is good and it kicks ass or it doesn't kick ass or it's, you know, 
just just you know sensationalistic viewings of movies that didn't really mean anything i found this roger ebert review mario and it changed my fucking life and i will admit that i took the most unbelievable paragraph not because of its writing but because of what it illustrated to me, which I would then use in like the next and some of the movies watch watching some of the movies that would come I saw after this, like directly after this, I just took it and I copied and pasted it into my essay and he never knew. And I got an A. And I just took this one thing and I just focused on that. I took this one paragraph, I focused on this one idea and I'm, I kind of feel bad about it, but it's stuck in my head. I'm going to read this paragraph now and then we can kind of jump off and talk about Raging Bull and why I just I, I just think it's so good. Um, so it's the it's the fourth to last paragraph. So he's already kind of gone through the whole, you know, Roger loves kind of like summarizing narratives and things like that. I don't know why he always wastes like half a review just like summarizing the plot in like fairly, um, you know, fairly specific detail. But this is what he wrote. He wrote, The most effective visual strategy in the film is the use of slow motion to suggest a heightened awareness. Just as taxi drivers Travis Bickle saw the sidewalks of New York in slow motion, so Lamada sees Vicky so intently that time seems to expand around her. Normal movement is shot at 24 frames a second. Again, the first time I had ever considered frame rate. Slow motion uses... Uh, uh, Slow motion, normal movement is shot at 24 frames a second, semicolon. Slow motion uses more frames per second, so it takes longer for them to be projected. I don't know why he's putting this in there. Like, everyone that reads this is an idiot and doesn't know, like, how... Just me who was reading it. Other kids weren't reading this. This is for grown-ups, I'm assuming. Uh, Scorsese uses such subtle speeds as 30 or 36 frames per second, and we internalize the device so that we feel the tension of narrowed eyes and mounting anger when Jake is triggered by paranoia over Vicky's behavior. So the thing that came to my mind literally instantly, and I can remember this, this moment very specifically, is when she's in, when she's at the pool and he's watching her through the pool. They're just kind of, you know, he's, he's trying to get, um, they're talking about her, you know what I mean? Him and Joey, played by Joe Pesci, are just, they're just talking about, talking about Vicky, and he's like, who is she? And they, it's just, every time he looks over at her, it's in slow motion. And that would be enough, I think, not to quote Hamilton. Um, that would be enough to kind of, to make its point. But then there's the totally subtle and completely genius moment when Jake is, he's got his title shot, you know what I mean? And he's at the hotel room and he's just kind of pacing back and forth and he's just anxious. And, you know, she asks for a piece of cake and then Joey's like, why don't you get a cheeseburger and fries? At least it's a meal. And he's like, okay, she's like, that sounds good. I'll get that. And then Jake Lamont is like kind of talking about his wife, like she's free to do whatever she wants. Blah, blah, blah. And she's like, I'll order a cheeseburger. And then Jake goes to lay down on the bed. And then Tommy comes in, who's kind of like the gangster. Um, and he just wants to say hello. And then Vicky goes to kiss him goodbye just you know give him an innocent kiss goodbye and he doesn't see her in slow motion the slow motion thing is gone that like narrowed perception that kind of observational cue that he gave you that internalized movement of the camera is has disappeared and he no longer feels that way about vicky and it's a totally different we're dealing with a totally different man at that point up until that point, Mario, I had watched movies generally because I like them 
I, I, I appreciated movies. I knew what I liked. I couldn't articulate what I liked about things. Up until this moment, I had no real concept of what it meant to do any of this stuff in a movie. To how a movie worked and what you could do with a camera and how visualizing and this is one of the best this is one of the best um uh narration films that Scorsese has ever done because the narration is is really just conversation that's overlaid over other uh over other things um i didn't understand how you could tell somebody what was happening and how, what how somebody was feeling inside with a camera movement with a film technique this was this was it, and it's funny because he showed like the second movie we watch again. It's on your list. It's like famous for all of its film things. Um, it wasn't until I read this paragraph, and then like watched the movie like over and over and over again that I got it. But that's it, Mario. It was uh, you know, it was all hands on deck inside the mind of Tom Nolan. After that, when thinking about movies, so that's the thing. So like. Going back to the beginning, when I saw that shot, the opening shot, that just amazing smoke-filled ring with like, you know, the, the I don't know, like lettering that just kind of gives me chills when I see it. And that just amazing, um, the amazing score. You know, this is all just classical music that he used. He didn't act. There was like a score written, but he used all those like great themes are not like for the movie. They're just things he took. Um, I didn't know what that was. But now it's one of those things after watching movies like a, a, like a lot of times and not even just that, but just kind of, you know, Frank Vincent and Joey and Joe Pesci walking down the street later. I understood that after watching a whole bunch of movies, which Raging Bull made me want to watch and want to watch them, not just to be entertained, but to know something about film and about like who these people were and then subsequently how like who I was. I understood that the opening shot and like I understood that this movie was not just like a Scorsese vision in and of itself. It was a mix of, you know, Truffaut and Wells and Kurosawa all just kind of mixed through this, you know, uh, Scorsese's own personal uh, uh, creativity, his own personal muses, his own personal passions and things like that. Um and it's it's really fascinating to watch these things now and think about them that way and just kind of really take them for granted. I don't know how you feel about classic movies that you've like watched a million times and you just, I just like take it for granted now. I don't know, but I still like it's like the fight scenes that I find amazing and the way they're so odd and weird and you know the sound, the editing and the sound uh, design specifically are so. Um, they're never going to be duplicated, even though people try to duplicate it all the time. Like the great part about my favorite, one of my favorite things about Raging Bull is that after Raging Bull and like the not the punching effects, like the but remember that sound that uh, when he was fighting Sugar Ray and like Sugar Ray was beating him like the last time he they showed him fight Sugar Ray. And the they, Valentine's Day Massacre, and they do that or not Massacre, yeah, the Valentine's yeah. Day whatever. But they do those, you know, it's they do that great push and shot where like 
you know, it looks, it's, he's, Sugar Ray's the devil and he's sending Jake LeMond to hell. You know what I mean? Like the lights, the way the lights are framed on the ceiling kind of look like wings. And he's got the two, where the two, there's two lights like right over his head. They kind of like suggest horns and like Jake's just, you know, it's looking down at Jake and he's, there's smoke everywhere and he's going to fucking send him down. But before that, there's those, that screaming when he goes to hit him. You know what I mean? That like animalistic screaming sound that like kind of follows the upward arc of his punch. And then as he follows through and like Rocky would try to do that too. They try to do that in like all the Rocky movies that came after um, raging bull or uh, maybe in three and four specifically, they would do this thing, this heightened kind of faux raging bull sound effects of, of like the punching and stuff like that. But it was even though Russell really tried to do all of that too. But that's the thing. But I and I was thinking of the fighter a lot because I was trying to think of like the last good boxing. I didn't think, I think Southpaw was okay, but that's because I kind of like Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm kind of a Jake Gyllenhaal stand to use a modern Southpaw's term for stuff. Good, in spite of its like boxing stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 And I think actually, I actually think the fighter is kind of the same way. Like it's good when it's just kind of christian bale christian bailing all over the place and then when it tries to be a boxing movie i'm just like i don't care i don't care what mark Wahlberg's doing like at all but that's neither yeah. here nor there but that stuff was that stuff was if you didn't know and that's the thing i didn't know how they created those sounds until i read this review and so like the light bulbs flashing are just breaking panes of glass they just took. They just brought a bunch of glass into a sound studio and fucking broke it in different ways to get different sounds. And then the those those sounds of like the punches coming through the air are actual human screams, animal shrieking, and bird calls, all mixed into a sound. And it's just it's just amazing. It's fucking amazing, and it's you know. And it was for like a long time. It was the best for actually a, a really long time. It was the best movie I've ever seen. And I think the really the reason it's kind of here and not like up higher is that it doesn't speak to it's an it's a biographically important film, but the film in and of itself doesn't suggest anything to me personally. Where the movies above it, I can have I have biographical attachments to those two, and they would ultimately speak to. Um, who I am as a person, like who I like would ultimately become as a person or articulate something about myself that I was always kind of really interested in understanding and whether or not I knew I was interested in understanding it. Um, so yeah, raging bull. I I feel like we've kind of talked about raging bull and I feel like I I'm, I'm not a hundred percent clear where you stand on the, on the bull. Um, yeah. I, last time I watched this was, uh 12 years ago it's probably one of the final like major scorsese films i i get to mm-hmm. um it's it's entertaining it's it's a, there is a a huge void of sports films of any sport sort on my list and that is not by any sort of accident i find the genre as a whole to be boring well, i me do too, appreciate but... the fact yeah i do appreciate the fact that this is much more of an auto biographical it has much more of a biopic quality to the degree that it's more a psychological analysis of Lamada. Um ultimately though I'm not ever as taken aback by it as most people are. I think it has a few really amazing sequences. You know, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, beatdown, 
Um, the scene after Lamana gets arrested. I think this is this is for me De Niro's greatest performance. Oh yeah, hands um, down. of his life. Yeah. Um, but I just I never had as much of an emotional or, or kind of I I don't think had I seen this contemporaneously I, w- I would be blown away by it or impressed by it. Um, I would appreciate it on a technical level. Uh, mm. I mean, I definitely appreciate the uh, De Niro's performance. I don't. I think this is actually a pretty minor Pesci performance. Um, well, it's, early, it's weird early Pesci because he wasn't like an actor. He was like a B movie actor, yeah, yeah, for a long time, and then they saw him and they were just like, "Oh, get him!" But I think yeah, he's, he's, he's he portrays the the uh, like the younger brother quality. I think pretty well. He does. He does. But there's there there is a level of restraint that I feel exceeds the character I feel like that he, he shows that that's like almost an excess of, of, of reaction to the bomb basicness. Oh, your cat really wants to get in there. Of, yeah, he's, um, he's hungry. Um, that, that, you know, well, the Nero shows, uh, well, then he tones, turns into Tony Shalhoub at the end of the movie. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, the one, th- so, so yeah, I, I've never, I, I appreciate all the technical aspects of it. I don't think, I love it necessarily has an editing piece when um, for a good part of it's like quieter moments, it feels like the camera just stays in one spot for a lot. But so loses a lot of the energy. And that's the thing for Uh, me. I think that there's a ton of energy in those quiet moments for me because I think De Niro's Lamada is just literally boiling and you can kind of see him boil, which is just kind of great. I agree, but I think to me it loses a a uh, aspect of cinematic quality in the fact that like there's a, a delineated fourth wall in a lot of those living room the living specifically like the living room scene where he asks you know like uh, says about killing people um, uh-huh. a scene in the kitchen where he's trying to get you know uh, Pesci to punch him and then later on in the jail scene there's there's a clearly like delineated audience like there you know like it's it's played to a space, so it doesn't feel like a. It doesn't have a, a full fullness. To well, it. and that's the true. I think that's um, those are the true faux inst- influences there. Um, and yeah. I think the Kurosawa influences too. I think a lot of those early Kurosawa movies um, really play a major role here, where it's kind of a. a, a they act a little bit like a th- it's, it acts a little bit like a theater piece at various times. Um, which I personally find fascinating, but I can see where, like, if you're looking for something else out of it, um, those kind of odd theatery moments are—they don't play. They don't have the same. They don't have the same intimacy as like the fight scenes do, where you're literally like in somebody's face or like under somebody while they're getting their ass beat. It's. I, I, it just feels like uh, it feels a little discordant from like the rest of the film, like the rest of the film has a very broad dimensionality in terms of how the camera flows through the scene um, that I think is kind of lost in some of those other moments that, that it's, it's not necessarily a failing of it. It's, it's, as you said, a Truffaut influence, um, but it just doesn't, it, it, it kind of takes me out of it. It makes me, it, it, it disrupts something for me. Um, and I, I still, I still like it. I still like it quite a bit. Um, it's, it's not my favorite of the year. I think like Kajmusha, um, and Altered States and Elephant Man are films I, I really 
get a lot more out of from that year. Um, but I, I think also the thing about Raging Bull is the fact that I come to this movie in the midst of watching a ton of film. Um, this is well, like I my think Netflix. It's... This is my Netflix rental spree of, oh, okay. of classic cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's when it's kind of jammed right in, you know, a uh, cornucopia of a film like that. It it, it numbs you. It's it, it doesn't maybe has have those has those moments that that stand out with such vibrancy uh, the one thing i will say though to, to, to your first point i'm always shocked that i came into like weird intimacy with the extrania of you know a film before you it just always blows my mind because i remember even like 96 97 like I was obsessed with reading Owen Gleiberman and Todd McCarthy's reviews, mm-hmm. like mostly to justify my love of certain films or to see like what they what they thought of of certain films. Like they're the only two people I gave a shit about, mm-hmm. and um and no and Siskel Niebert because I'd always like rush home to watch like I forgot what night day it was on. I think it was on when like Thursdays would be like the new episode of At the Movies. Um, I'd rush home and just to see it, just to get mad at Siskel, even though I've grown to become Siskel, I guess. Because uh, <laughs> Siskel usually like vehemently disagreed with what I wanted him to say. Huh. Um, it's always it's always just weird to me that like I, like I was an eleven year old, ten year old, or whatever. But I was just doing like that. obsessed with all that shit, and I was like, doing that I, with, with music though. Like that was my whole yeah. that was my my jam back then. Like the thing that ruled my life was music, and then film kind of like had this other quality to it where we were watching weird stuff. Um, but it was, it didn't ever seem as important as um, whatever the next Pearl Jam record was going to be, or, you know, finding a Bauhaus record at Goodwill or like whatever else we were, like we could, we were into at that moment. You know what I mean? Like Nick Cave or um, whatever. It didn't matter. And yeah, Rollin, I ever, fucking Rollins band. It's like, you know, learning all the different iterations of all the bass players in Henry Rollins band or like an Elvis Costello's bands or like any of those. Be- that was what that was what we were doing. And then movies were on the side. But this kind of showed me like movies don't necessarily have to be on the side and you can do both things because they're both doing different things. And then and that's the thing. So like after this, I saw this movie in 1999. After this, I would kind of have my the doors blown off of my life by movies. Um, as we're going to talk about as we get kind of deeper into this list here. Um, but I, I did I never had a language for recognizing that stuff. I had a language for talking about music. I didn't have a language for talking about movies in that way. Um, it's funny. I still have not developed a language for music. I still find music to be like this weird art form that I'm like, oh, that's a thing that goes in a movie. But, but it's also, I think you talk about music, I think a lot in the same way that I talk about like art. Like, I mean, like painting and stuff like that, where I'm just like, I like that. And it speaks to me. And then someone could say, why does it speak to you? Like, I don't know. Because I fucking like it. And that's, I, I'll that's be like, why? and I will just compare music to something. I, I'll be like, because it makes me think of a scene in like this. Yeah. And I'll compare, I'll just compare it to an art form I actually like really deeply care about. Sure. And I think I, I, and I, I would do something similar if I saw like, I think I would do something similar if I saw like a painting. I talk about a painting. There's a, there's a painting called Samson Blinded by Lovis Corinth. And you could say, why do you like that? And I would say, you know why? Because it made me think of a movie. It made me think of an idea for a movie. Like that I was kind of actively trying to write for a while about like an artist that like, you know, 
like kept seeing visions of other people's paintings and like couldn't do his own painting. It's like, but I don't know why it's good. I don't know why it's at the Met, you know, or where it is in like its relation to Starry Night or any of that stuff. I don't know, but it made me think of some stuff, and now I've now it's kind of just attached to me forever. Yeah, um, and that's the same way I am with music. Yeah, exactly. So it's just it's it's one of those it's one of those things. And all those people who just are pissy about me hating musicals are now like, ah, come full circle because <laughs> he's got a plebier. Musicals are tough, man. I mean, we got, we got, my, my daughter likes musicals and we got, um, ah, what's the thing like Broadway on demand or so there's some, you know, streaming service that has like, a ton of recorded musicals on it, which is funny because they have a Hugh Jackman, Oklahoma on it. And which is like a, a very renowned performance of uh, of Oklahoma, and it's not doing the same thing that Hamilton's doing. I guess it's pretty dynamic. They've got a couple cameras going. They got some good angles. They got some close ups and things like that. They got fucking Hugh Jackman singing. But me and my daughter were watching it, and we were just fucking bored. We we're just like, oh, it's a, who cares how beautiful the morning is? Like, what is happening? Like you're just imagining your wagon, like in singing a song. Like I don't, I don't care about any of this stuff. And we tried to watch a bunch of different things. We we're just like, this all sucks. I'm, I, I feel like a lot of the same way you do about musicals. Um, yeah. So I don't For think sure. you should feel bad about it. No, no. And I, I guess that's the thing that goes like, like just going back to Raging Bull is the thing. Like I watch a lot of it going like, oh, a lot of this has been done. Like outside the fighting thing. Like the fighting scenes themselves, I'm just like, yeah, that's great. But like, if I want to have this sort of veracity, I'm going to watch a fight, you know? See, that's the thing. I would rather, I guess so. But I think Raging Bull does something else because like, I guess it was, was it the same scene? I think, I guess it was the, the Ray Lewis scene or the Sugar Ray scene. Sugar Ray Robinson where he's not Ray Lewis. Uh, Sugar Ray Robinson scene where he's, where he punches him and all the blood splatters all over the people, like in the audience, in like the mm. first couple of rows. You know what I mean? And it's just like a tremendous amount of blood that just like shoots out of his head or like just shoots out of his fucking face. Um, and again, from a cinematic perspective, I had would have had no idea how that was done and like the tubes and the thing and like he shot it in tubes in their hair. He shot it in black and white because he knew he was going to make it bloody. So he didn't want to, you know, shoot it in color because he knew he'd probably get like a uh, an X rating or something if he shot it in color. Um, all that other stuff aside, old people getting blood in their mouth because of like a boxing match is always going to be more interesting to me i think than like watching a real boxing match which i've seen a i've seen a couple of and are no one no old people in the front row get blood in their mouth because of like a lennox lewis versus whoever boxing match you're watching the wrong fights i don't i don't know what i'll show you some dark web fights i'm okay <laughs> i'm kidding i don't i don't know they no no and i i i agree but there's a certain disconnect I've always had from a cinematic portrayal of a fight. I'd much rather go into a fight or, or go into a climactic sports scene in these movies and leave it. It's just always been a personal prejudice mm-hmm. of mine. And that like, I, I just don't, I, I enjoy some, I enjoy actual sports, but I get to these moments. And I just don't care. Like there, there's something, I think so. there's something that ultimately feels too staged about that. But that's too much of a, 
the beauty I think of V to Raging Bull is that quality. the fights are never about the fighting. They're always about like his sexual problem or his jealousies or his like Pride, some kind yeah. of yeah, something something way deeper and much more destructive than just kind of money. It's one of the reasons I love this movie too, is that like all the traditional boxing things and all the traditional sports narratives are like gone from this. So like they mention money and they're just kind of like, oh, you know, there's that one great scene where he he loses in the technical knockout. Um and everyone else is super fucking upset. It's really it's the first fight we see of him and he loses by uh, technicality. Um and he uh, everyone else is super mad. Joe Pesci's mad. The rest of the trainers are mad, and he's just like soaking his hand in ice. He doesn't really care because, it, like, the fighting in and of itself excised some emotional thing that was happening inside of him, and it kind of just sets the table for the rest of these fights where the fighting is really is is not the thing. It's like the stuff around the fighting that's that's the thing. The one thing I will champion about this film, though, that I think a lot of people don't is is that Schrader and um. Oh God! Who's who's who is the co-writer on this? Mal- Malkin, yeah, Sharon Sh- Sh- Malkin script, uh, and the fact that um, I think it's Malkin. Um, Martin. The narrative, Mad- Mardik Martin. Okay, uh, the the script surrounding it makes you, especially before and after those Robinson fights, make you care so much about Lamada, who's already not necessarily a very empathetic character. Um, that Robinson, who's who's you know historically one of the most beloved revered boxers of all time yep it makes you want to see like robinson like have his jaw torn off like you like he like and, and, and he's portrayed almost as such as this like kind of demonic figure as you said by by scorsese um and the fact that like it, it kind of like screws it all on its head and the fact that robinson's like truly an unspoken villain in this and like you want to see like robinson Get like fucking annihilated. Well, he's like the angel of death, and he's giving Lamada the thing that he wants most when he most wants it, which is to yeah. be de- fucking destroyed. Um, and I think the nature, I think it's one of the things where they portray the nature, they portray boxing not so much as like a sport of kings or something like that. They portray it as a thing people do because they got a thing. They got a thing inside of them that like makes them want to do this. Yeah, uh, because for Lamada, it's never about the fight. It's always about the other stuff. And they just kind of establish, I think, with the other guys, too, where it's, you know, when he destroys that good looking guy, you know, what I mean, he's like, you know, he ain't good looking, he ain't pretty no more. That kind of classic line. And then they say the next guy he fights when he kind of, uh, you know, Lamada's on the ropes for most of the fight. And then he just like beats the shit out of him and wins the fight. They talk about how this the next guy he fights wanted to bring the title home for France. And so there's like a inherent pride attached to it rather than like simply winning the fight. It's not enough to win a purse. It's not enough to kind of like uh, excise a or exercise like a specific personal demon related to fighting, uh, which is like what all the Rocky stuff was about. It is about, uh, like I said before, sexuality, jealousy, pride, uh, like masculinity or the perception of masculinity or the idea of what masculinity is supposed to be versus like what it like truly is. And I, the connection is unstable. So you probably didn't hear any of that. Um, I heard a bit of it. Most of it. So it's, it's, it's always about this other thing. So that's the, uh, I don't know. It's be actually, we'd be good to talk about just that maybe to end on is like the only other sports movie that I considered putting on my list was a league of their own. 
which again had very little to do with sports. Although I think they did the baseball really well. I just think they got really good. You know, you talk about Gina Davis before. I love Gina Davis in that. I love Lori Petty in that. I I'm like a kind of pseudo not Tom Hanks fan in like real life. Like I I like Tom Hanks. I never love Tom Hanks, but I really like him in a League of Their Own. And a lot of the ancillary stuff that's happening in a League of Their Own, I think, really works for me. I think if we probably if we went if we extend our list to like the one twenties, a League of Their Own would probably show up fairly recently. Are there any sports movies in your life that you're just like like that movie's close? Hot Rod. <laughs> not Talladega. I'm not lying. Not Talladega Nights. Be like, Hot, Hot Rod would be legitimately the closest film that I get to like, like, like actually giving a shit about a sports movie. Interesting. And that I wouldn't call that a sports movie in in the least. Um, I don't care hmm. about the sports. Uh, Southpaw, but once again, because Southpaw's everything but a sports film. Um, yeah. I th- I find sports distract. I find sports inherently uncinematic as a way which which is a weird thing to say because they're often presented with a cinematic quality um and i actually find like the the recent view of cinematic wrestling matches to be very entertaining uh-huh. um but no not, uh probably yeah probably the wrestler I the rest well the wrestler but i don't again i don't think of that as a sports movie at all that's just well i guess know. I guess the moments of wrestling are the one thing where I'm like, oh, like wrestling with a cinematic quality can work. But I think it's already a stage performance. So that makes sense. Um, but in terms of actual true real sports, uh, I can't think of, I can't think of a, um, like, yeah, no, it'd be something like Hot Rod. It'd be something like Major League. Yeah, something well, where the sports play such a little role, and it's more comedy. Well, uh, major, more character, more the characters, character, more the yeah. characters surrounding sports. Because the sports, you know, are to me are at its best when it's just larger than life personality. Yeah, and I find larger than life personalities to be less enthralling when they're serious. Or I don't, I don't find like the characteristics of, uh, you know, a Muhammad Ali or a Tom Brady. Um, I agree with all. you. Yeah, I agree or, with you. Uh, Joe, not Joe. It was a Joe Namath, the guy that had the the sports jacket, the jackets, and all that. Was it not Joe Namath? What's his name? That guy jackets. from the Jets. Joe Namath. Yeah, jackets. Is it Joe Namath? He always had the big jackets, like the fur jackets. Oh yeah, Joe Namath. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't give two fucks about like people like that because I just find it stupid. I agree with you. Yeah, I it's... flamboyant for no sense, but I, I find like goofy characters in sports. You know, uh, the Yogi Berra's in sports mm-hmm. to be endearing. And and I guess that's kind of extenuated by the kind of goofiness that is inherent in like a hot rod or a, the major leagues. And it's funny because I think one of the reasons that I think uh, the wrestler and Raging Bull are on my list here is is because the, the sports that they're portraying have some kind of stakes behind them. I've like the natural and a league of uh, not a league of their own and like field of dreams and like all these baseball movies or any given Sunday, like I don't, th- those things have no stakes. Like they're, I think they're Oliver Stone is trying to portray in like a league of the, uh, I don't think I'll keep doing that. Any given Sunday is having like really high, uh, really high, like stakes for life. You know what I mean? So when that guy, remember, mm. remember in, in days of thunder, days really of thunder is another one. Guilty of this. Yeah. But days of thunder is awesome because just Michael Rooker is great in it. There's a lot of movies on my list that I almost wanted to put on because Michael Rooker is in them. And he's high. I mean, Michael Rooker's got a movie that's high up, Mario. That's right up there. That's so, a cliffh- cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. We're talk about that again. Yeah. 
Season's over, asshole. Is that a sports movie? I don't know if Cliffhanger is a there. sports movie. That'd be up there. Oh, but Michael Rooker, I mean, it's funny. Michael Rooker is, you know, an entity unto himself. Like, I think when the guy who wrote my the movie that Michael Rooker is in the time I list wrote it, I think he wrote Michael Rooker's best line in anticipation of Michael Rooker delivering it with that typical, like, growl, upturn, like, it's just, ah, Michael Rooker. Awesome. I'm really excited Michael Rooker outlived that momentary lapse in his career where people just associated him with Doug Hutchinson. Like, cause like they were kind of like two pieces of the pod. Like people were like, you remember Michael Rooker in Green Mile? It's like, he's not in Green Mile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, you remember Michael Rooker married that 18 year old? Like Rooker's like, I didn't do that guys. And then, <laughs> and then, you know, James Gunn brought him back and that's good for James Gunn to, to, to bring back Michael Rooker for the precipice of career destruction. Not yeah, yeah. Doug Hutchinson though is still, still not back. And I'm, I'm happy with that. Oh, poor Doug Hutchinson. All right. Ah, uh, no, that's... He He made his bed. He deserves it. All right, fine. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. It's weird to think of these people as, like, being... Like, Doug Hutchinson was nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award. For... I mean, it was a it was a cast ensemble one, but, like... Oh. Okay. These people that are just... No. I was like... These people that are just the like, worst... Psychopath... What psychopath gave Doug Hutchinson a, 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 like a solitary nomination? I don't know. I'm seeing sh- the episode of The Closer. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, remember The Closer? That was good. All right. I think that's it, Mario. I think that is. Uh, we're going to be taking a break from the list next week. Tom? I'm very excited about it. I've, I've read more, Mario, and I'm, I'm ready. How far uh, into it are you now? I think I'm like, what was I, 30, I did like another, you know, 10, 15 pages uh, tonight, you know, just, it's hard because I have to do family stuff all the time, so I'm actually, I'm going to turn this off, I'm going to have a snack, I'm going to eat a couple of oranges, and then I'm going to go back to reading, so, um, yeah. but I love so it. My but I, to write a bit and uh, go back to reading. I love it, so, uh, you know, it'll be good. Yeah, next week we'll be talking about Charlie Kaufman's debut novel, Ant Kind. Woo, it's so charming. That'll be the entire episode. Yeah, it'll be good. And 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 for people who are like, this is a film podcast, you charlatans, what are you doing? Um, let's just say uh, that within the first 15 pages of the um, book are, are uh, countless, countless film references. And he you, call- you got to the... And he calls Armin White a monster. It's like my favorite part. I was laughing out loud and my son was like, <laughs> what are you laughing at? I was like, you wouldn't get it. So I'm not yeah. going to bother you with it. And he's mentioned to this point at least two films I didn't know of their existence and well, then researched them to find out that they existed. Well, it's so funny because I had seen that movie. Like I was... Obs- oh, which, which one? The um, Psycho... The William Greaves movie. I, yeah, I didn't see that one yet. I love that movie. I, I couldn't remember if if that was a real film. I knew William Greaves. I just can't remember that film. Yeah. And I was like, oh, right, that is. It's on Criterion. But it's so... Fu- but like that's like the... it's. The re- one of the reasons I love this book as far as I've gotten into it is that that is the perfect movie. And then he goes into a little bit more later about like, you know, he doesn't say like why it's perfect in relation to the book, but like the way that he talks about it, it is perfect I mean, it in him, relation to this it book. It helped him meet his African-American girlfriend. So. Right. <laughs> but it's just, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, 
it's a ride. It's a ride. And I'm yeah. I'm very happy that he's already kind of touching all of like the typical Charlie Kaufman things in the first like 20 pages. Yeah, and it, it continues on. Uh, I heard I've heard it I've I'm a, like a fourth of the way through it. I've heard there's a bit a part where people say it drags. I'm not sure that's going to happen to me. Cuz like I don't know, they I say mean, it drags cuz like the plot loses its thread and I'm like I already don't care about the plot. Yeah, like, I, I mean gotta I'm stay in the brain of Charlie Kaufman. I'm purposely avoiding all reviews of it. Um just because I don't want to know, um, so I'm mm. going into it pretty clean, which makes me pretty, which makes me happy. So it's like it's be, it's a good experience so far. So yeah, we're we're gonna get into that. So an entire episode dedicated to to Ant Kind next week. Woo. All right, and we'll hopefully, uh, the, barring Tom's car becoming sentient and attacking Robert England, um, we and Ted Levine, we will be back in studio, <laughs> both of us next week. That'll be good. That'll be a good episode to do that in. Yeah. No more stopping, which the, and uh, it'll sound better and it'll make us both happier. <laughs> yeah, because we won't have to stop every, every five 10 minutes seconds. And poke at our head and just wave like this. <sighs> All right, let's end I mean, it. It still might happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so before it oh, happens Osbury, again, do, Osbury, do the outro. Osbury, do the outro. You do the outro. No, you start the outro. Oh, right. That part. <laughs> well, you want to talk about films or literature or get angry about politics now with us, you can do that at Film Pivotal on Twitter. Or you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Well, we will be happy to discuss um, why you're wrong about whatever you know thing you think we said wrong about politics on our, on our Twitter feed. Or if you agree with us, we'll also disagree with you. Yeah, just because we're like that. Uh, or, you go to, or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies on our pivotal film list and a list of the beers we drank. I'm not going to post the bud on there, guys, so don't worry about it. Um, or the one beer I had is on there already. It's already on there. Uh, or you can see uh, how to subscribe um, or you know our best of list or whatever. Um, but yeah, so read a book, see movies, read books, drink beers, and we'll talk to you later.